Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, one of our listeners writes in, and they have a great question. And the question is this. Why was Jesus being from Nazareth derogatory? Wow. This is a, this is a really interesting question. Luke 4.24 gives a general principle on human relationships. We often envy the success of those who come from the same circumstances or or, or situations that we do. In fact, the people of Nazareth seem to resent the fact that rather than staying at home, Jesus went off and he became uh, a success elsewhere other than in Nazareth. Now, this is a problem for the prophets who get less respect than anybody else. People love their hometown heroes. They cheer for them, right? You, you see that in stadium after stadium, whether it's Major League Baseball or the NFL or hockey or soccer and on and on. But people do not like local prophets. Prophets have a way of confronting sin and unbelief, and Jesus did exactly that, which is hardly the way to become popular. To prove his point, about prophets without honor, Jesus used two examples from the life of two great Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, in Luke 4, 25 and 27. And like Jesus, these men often went without honor in their home country, and yet God used them to share his grace with two outsiders, the poor widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper. And Jesus emphasized that these needy people were not from Israel. The widow lived in the land of Sidon. Naaman came from Syria. And since both of these were Gentiles, they came from somewhere outside of the family of God. And the first story comes from the ministry of the prophet Elijah in Luke 4, 25 through 26. This one was desperate. She was down to her last meal, but God sent Elijah to meet her and asked for a drink of water and a morsel of bread. And at first the woman refused. Elijah told her not to be afraid, but to go ahead and to bake him a cake and then to feed herself and her son. And he told her this based on a promise from God. Now, amazingly, the widow did what Elijah said. She went home to bake him some bread, and God miraculously provided for her. Her her supplies did not run out as God had promised. Now, why did Jesus use one of these stories for one of his examples? Well, partly because the widow lived in Zarephath, which was outside of Israel, and therefore confirmed what he said about prophets being without honor at home. But you see, Jesus also used her story for another reason. The widow had to believe God's promise before seeing God's miracle. And if she had waited for God to prove himself, she would have had died of starvation long before she ever ate a mouthful of food. God would perform the miracle of flour and oil only if she acted in faith by first making the bread. Only then would she see what God could do. 
In other words, she had to believe before she could see it. And she believed it. And there were many widows in Israel. But this was a woman who had faith. She knew her need. She recognized her extreme poverty and fatal lack of resources. And she believed that God would do exactly as he said. In fact, the story of Naaman teaches the same lesson in Luke 4.27. Again, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman was an outsider, a commander in the army of one of Israel's most hated enemies. And unlike the widow, Naaman was extremely wealthy. Nevertheless, his leprosy made him just as needy. And so he traveled down from Syria to see if God's prophet, Elisha, could do anything to heal him. Elisha had just the remedy that Naaman needed. All he had to do was bathe in the Jordan River seven times and his skin would be restored. But to do this, Naaman had to trust the word of God. And at first he was skeptical. Elisha's instructions made him angry because he was looking for a miracle that worked more like magic. But eventually Naaman's servants persuaded him to do what Elisha had told him to do. After all, his need was desperate, and all he had to do was wash and to be clean. Naaman acted in faith on the word of God, and when he did, he witnessed God's saving power in his life. And with these two stories, Jesus was calling the people of Nazareth and us today to faith in Christ. And if they refused to believe in him, he would give his grace to those who would believe, just as he did in the days of Elijah and Elisha. But only if they took him at his word would they see the salvation of their God. And this is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. If we want to receive eternal life, we need to believe the promise of the gospel. God does not take us first to heaven and then ask us if we want to go there. Instead, he invites us to believe in his finished its efficient work, promising that we will be saved forever at the moment we do. We have to believe him. We have to take him at his word as he is revealed in the word of God. Now, the people of Nazareth still couldn't see it and they weren't ready to believe it. The longer Jesus preached, the angrier they came uh, to be and the more they wanted to put him to death, Luke 428 through 29 tells us no no prophet receives honor in his hometown but even so this is an extreme reaction and whenever jesus said that his gospel was for the world it always touched a nerve on the jewish patriotism of his day not to say prejudice later the apostles faced the same kind of hostility in luke 13 40 6 through 50, and in Acts 22, 21, and 22. People in places like Nazareth wanted to believe that, that God was only for them and not for others. They, they were offended by this idea that, that God would share his grace with people who didn't even deserve it. And so when Jesus started talking about lepers and foreigners, it made them quite angry. They resented the implication that Gentiles would receive something they themselves did not have the faith to believe. And so they tried to stone him, executing the ancient penalty for blasphemy on Jesus. And in those days, there there was more than one way to stone somebody. Sometimes the guilty party was tied up so 
people could throw rocks at him, but sometimes it was just easier to throw someone off a cliff, dashing him against the stones below. This is what the Nazareth wanted to do with Jesus. So they dragged him up a steep slope, and they tried to push him over the edge. This was mob violence. This was not the first time somebody tried to kill Jesus, and it would not be the last. Herod tried to kill him when he was a baby, and when he was a man, many people plotted against Jesus until finally they put him to death. What happened at Nazareth was a premonition of the cross. Already we can tell that something horrible will happen to Jesus. We see what kind of savior he will become. Someone despised and rejected by men, as Isaiah 53, 3 says. No prophet was ever dishonored like Jesus, not only in his hometown, but in the very world in which he made and he sustains. This time God delivered him. Luke tells us in Luke 4.30 that passing through their midst, he went away. Now, this mysterious verse does not explain to us how Jesus escaped. Jesus came to suffer and to die for sinners. But it was not yet his time to die. Which is why in John's Gospel you might see the phrase, hour. What John has in mind is the hour in which Jesus is going to suffer and die in our place and for our sin. And until that hour happens which happened after the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, when he was arrested and taken and tried and beaten and mocked and and ridiculed and scourged and on and on and on and, and dying by crucifixion, that hour came to be. But it would not happen that Jesus would die until that hour in the in the providence of God had come to fruition. And when it came time he would do it of his own accord but the hour of suffering that we're talking about here in Luke 4 it had not yet come to be and as far as we know from the gospel of Luke this was the last time that Jesus ever appeared in Nazareth he went away and he never returned John eleven eleven says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him And for some of them, it must have been the last opportunity they ever had to hear Jesus preach, to believe that he was the Christ and to worship him as their Savior and their Lord. They missed the chance. Rather than receiving him by faith in his name, they demanded even more evidence. And when he refused to give in to their demands, they tried to kill him. Luke tells us these things to confront us with the claims of Christ. And the question now comes back to us. Who is Jesus and what in the world does he want to to do with me? And as we see how people responded to Jesus, we start to realize that we ourselves need to make a response. That the claims of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man and coming under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve, it demands a response. Now, perhaps we don't wish to kill him, of course, but if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, then even an indifferent response to Jesus will condemn us. Now, we have heard the same gospel that the people heard in Nazareth, preached by the same Christ. Jesus says that he can rescue us from our debt and our bondage to sin and to give us spiritual sight. 
This is precisely what we need. If only we will admit it. If we trust in him, he will redeem us. He will reconcile us to God. That's the good news of the gospel. That Christ has come to give us the peace of God, as Romans 5 clearly tells us. You see, it was because of Christ alone that you can be forgiven. You can be given a new identity. You've been given a, a new meaning, a new purpose. You've been given hope in Christ. The question is, will you be like the people in the crowd at Nazareth and reject Jesus? Or will you be like those who believe Christ, take him at his word, repent of your sin, and put your faith and your hope in Christ alone? That's what Acts 16.31 very clearly tells us, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe that, that Christ suffered, that Christ paid the penalty in your place and for your sin and was buried and rose again. Believe that. And the Lord will raise you from death to new life in his name. Dear Christian, do not be afraid to proclaim this message. It is the good news. It is the only way. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. There's no one that can come to me any other way. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that, that the way is narrow. That means that the way is, is exclusive and it's restricted only to those who believe in Christ. Be faithful to the word of God. Do not do not back down. Do not cower in fear. In fact, that's what Paul says to Timothy. We're not, we would have not been given a spirit of timidity, but of sound mind and self-control. That's good news. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is using the word that you read, that you study, that you hear preached at your local church. And he's using it to shape you and to mold you and to make you more like Christ. So that when you face the, the challenging person that is rejecting Christ, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Savior and the Lord that you represent. And Jesus said in John 16, 33, that in this world you will have tribulation. We can expect it because it happened to our Lord. It will happen to us as we faithfully proclaim in this culture, this council culture, this culture of post-truth, where even meaning and value and worth is even under consideration today and is being rejected. We must stand on the word of God without apology and we must boldly declare that Christ is the only way to God. And only by believing in him can you have the forgiveness of sins. This is the message that Jesus preached. It's the message the apostles preached. It's the message that the church has been preaching since the beginning of the church up into the present day. Dear Christian, be faithful to the word. Be faithful to to Christ revealed in the word of God. Do not back down. Do not relent. Do not cower in fear. You're, the, the worst that can happen is they might take your life and then you'll be with your Lord. That's the worst that they can do. 
The worst that can happen is is somebody ridicules you on account of your proclamation of Christ. That's the worst. And at the final day, that's what matters. So don't fear. The worst that is going to happen this side of heaven is somebody might jeer you and shout you down. They might hit you. They might punish you. They might beat you. They might even take your life. And that alone is not even the worst that could happen. The worst that could happen is for those, for you to be silent and not to speak up. That's the worst. Because one of the main reasons that we are still here is to tell others about our Savior who has come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost and to make disciples from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, as Revelation 5 tells us, for the praise of his name and his glory. Do not cower in fear. Stand on the word of God and stand on the Christ revealed in the word of God. Well, now before I really get fired up, I just want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next week, may the Lord really richly and truly bless you as you, dear Christians, stand on the word of God and faithfully proclaim the glory of his name among the nations for his praise. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.